The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. So I'm Pastor Kurt, and, and Jed and I have been working through the book of 1 Thessalonians when Steve is unable to be here. So I'm going to give you a super fast kind of catch you up on what, what's been going on because it's been a while since we've worked through this book. So the Apostle Paul, with a bunch of his fellow missionaries, go out to bring the gospel. And originally they're in the area of modern day Turkey thinking they're going to continue through Asia Minor into Asia. But Paul has this dream and this man, this Macedonian man, is calling him to come to Macedonia, which is now kind of part of northern Greece, and bring the gospel there. So Paul switches plans. Goes in the opposite direction of what he thought he was going to be doing. And Paul does what he does. He comes into the town, goes into the temples, brings the gospel. Which usually causes trouble. So he's then forced out of that city... But Paul is diligent and shows up at the next city and goes through the same thing again. So he finally comes to the city of Thessalonica, brings the gospel there. The Jewish leaders there have some issues with what he is saying and so raise a revolt which pushes him out of the city. So eventually he sends back his son in the faith, Timothy, to check in on the church, excuse me, to see how the church is doing. What's going on? How are they doing? I didn't have much time to spend with them. And they're probably facing some sort of persecution. Find out how they're doing, Timothy. Timothy goes, checks in, and brings back a note, a message St. Paul, here's what's going on. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this, this city, this church in this, this town, is that as Paul travels, as he's waiting for Timothy to bring back word, Paul himself is hearing from other Christians how the church is doing. Other Christians are saying, have you heard about this church and their faith? Have you heard what they're doing? I mean, we're Christians and we think they're doing crazy stuff up there. So Timothy comes back and delivers a message and Paul writes this letter to this church. And we're going to focus on the last part, but I want to read one verse before we really jump in. Well, a couple verses before we jump into this. So if you, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 9. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Paul writes to the church there. He says in verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul is saying here, do you remember how I lived? How my conduct was? I want you to live that way, in a way that is worthy of the God that you have. Because we don't know how much more time we have before that God comes and returns. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that we could come here today and study your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly 
to proclaim boldly your truths. Spirit, I pray that you soften hearts to hear what it is we need to hear. That we would model the conduct of Paul. That we as a church would walk in a way that is worthy of the God who saved us. Lord, we cannot do it alone. And apart from you working in us, our work is futile. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. So just a few days ago, sitting on Yolanda's desk in the office was the the booklet pamphlet thing that they were handing out to the men on the men's retreat. And there was this great quote. And I said, I got to use that on Sunday. From D.A. Carson, he's a a professor, a teacher, a theologian. And this is his quote, speaking of the church. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationalities, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. End quote. And I love that Carson says, we are a group of natural enemies. Because see, the problem that we have is that we're sinful. We are selfish. We are self-centered, me-seeking people. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but when you get those kinds of people together, trouble happens. And that's what the church is. It's bringing these sinful people together, these selfish, self-centered, me-seeking people into one body. And as we read through this, we're going to be challenged on how we live together as the body of Christ. So flip over now, depending on your Bible, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 11. And what we're going to do is we're going to read through the passage. And then as we walk through the passage, at least the way I've read it, Paul lays down kind of three focuses that we're going to walk through. As we break apart this passage. First Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The first section, the first focus are these precepts that Paul lays down for us. He gives us precepts, their their rules, their commands that Paul says, this is what the church is supposed to be doing. 
And it starts out good. This is pretty cool, I think. A lot of times when Paul lays things down, it's because the church is struggling. But he starts out with verse 11. He says, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you've already been doing. You're already building each other up. You're already doing some good things. But don't, don't become complacent there. Don't just stay there. Continue to grow in these things. He's already heard from Timothy and others. The church is doing these things. But he's saying we need to continue to grow in the image of God. And you're not fully there yet. Don't just build up one another. Verse 12. We ask you, brothers, respect those who labor among you, who are over you, admonish you, esteem them highly in love because of their works. As a pastor, I can't help but be drawn to these two verses. I'm not going to lie. Okay? And we could sit and I can, I, we can do 45 minutes on this. And some pastors do do that. And if we had more time, I would come back to this. And then we could come back and not. But I want you to see the focus of this whole section here. As a pastor and someone who's been under pastors, I know what it's like to feel like I'm not loved. But I've also been under some not so great pastors and I know what it's like to not want to honor them. I get it. But let, me, let me say something here. Pastor Porter, you can back me up on this. Any pastor who's worth anything does not enter the ministry for the esteem of men or for financial gain. I've been doing this for almost 10 years, I guess now. There isn't any. There is no esteem and no financial gain. Maybe there is. Maybe if I write that book that everybody buys. But honestly, that's not my goal. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, respect and honor the pastors and leaders because it is a calling given to them by God. They are your leaders in the Lord. They're not there just because they're better than you. They're not better than you. They're not greater than you. They should be more mature in their faith, but just because I am mature doesn't mean I am better than you. I am placed here because God has called me. This was not my original plan. I, I did not want to be a pastor. God had called me. And I've loved every minute of it. Most of it, maybe. Maybe not every minute, but... <laughs> when the phone rings late at night and it's a parent, I'm not like, yes. <laughs> As pastors, we're not called to be dictators over you. We're actually called to be humble servants. We're under authority. We see this verse and we forget... You know, you, the church, are under the authority of pastors and leaders. I'm under authority too. I'm under God's authority. I might do wrong by you, but man, I am fearful of doing wrong under God. And Paul tells us to respect them, but we struggle so much to be under the authority of the pastors and the leaders that God has placed over us. Why? Because no one wants to be under authority. If you have an older sibling, you've lived your whole life hating that that older sibling tries to be the authority over you. I have an older sister. She was stricter than my mom was. And I would have to remind her, you're not my mom. Our mom, mine and your mom, doesn't mind me doing this. So I'm going to go do this. She's my authority, not you. Or maybe we have reasons. Maybe they're too old. They're out of touch. They don't know what's going on in the world. Or maybe they're too young. They haven't experienced enough. What do they have to say to us? Or maybe they're your peer. You're the same age. You have the same number of kids. You maybe even went to the same school. You remember what they were like in high school. And you're saying, I know who that guy is. I'm not going to be under his authority. 
Or maybe they've never had teenagers and they don't know what it's like to have their hair pulled out, you know, or, or maybe they don't have kids and, or, or it's been so long since they've had kids, they don't remember the stress of no sleep and crying and piles of diapers. Like, we have a million justifications to say why we don't want to be under someone's authority. But I love what Paul says here. He doesn't say, respect them, honor them, esteem them because of who they are as a person, but because of their work, the office they hold. A great example of this would be a police officer or a fireman or or a soldier. We respect them because of their job, but that same officer who pulled you over, who you said, yes, sir, yes, sir, you know, you stood up straight as soon as you saw the lights behind you, you know, you don't know. Maybe he goes home and struggles with alcoholism. Or maybe that, that, the, 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 the firefighter who we, we read the article in the paper and we praise him for going into that building and saving that family goes home and beats his own family. But we respect the position because of what they do. I look at my own life and I know that there are struggles I have. I know that I'm not perfect. But I think maybe more often, the reason we struggle to honor and esteem those who are put as shepherds over us really comes down to this. We don't hold the kingdom of God in high enough esteem. So we have contempt for those who bring forth the truth of that kingdom. I don't want God's kingdom because I really like this one right here, right now where I'm king. And my job as a pastor is to say to you, there is a king, but you're not it. Or you find your hope and your satisfaction in this stuff right here, right now. And I as a pastor have to come and say to you, there is hope and there is satisfaction. But it's not in the things that you're pursuing right here, right now. Pastors have an awesome responsibility before the Lord. Each of you will one day stand before God and you'll have to give account for all the things that you've done. And if you're a parent, you have to give account how you raised those kids. And if you're a father and a husband, you have to give an account on how you raised and led your family. Now, I have a great wife and I have five kids, but I also have these verses like Hebrews thirteen seventeen: Obey your leaders, submit to them for they're keeping watch over your soul. Here's the part for me that worries me as those who will have to give account. I have five kids and a wife. I have 30 students in a youth ministry. I have leaders. I have parents. I have, I have to give account for that. Or James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, for you know that those who teach what I'm doing right now, those who teach, they will be judged with greater strictness. Anybody want to change jobs? Know that the pastors think of this. And, and, and I have not met a pastor who doesn't or hasn't had those nights where they're literally weeping because they know this is the responsibility that they have placed on them. And they know that they're not always doing the best job. If you want to honor and respect your pastors, if you want to hold them up, esteem them, protect them. Paul's saying, church, don't honor, respect. You want to honor them, protect them, care for them, help them, support them. Don't attack them. I'm not saying don't call out your pastors. If your pastor's doing something wrong, you're responsible to call them out. But don't attack them. Love them. 
And he ends, he ends verse 3 with this, it's kind of like a connecting, bridging verse sentence here. He, he ends verse 13 by saying, Be at peace among yourselves. And this is the reason why I call it a bridge connecting, because yes, the church should be at peace with its leaders, but the church needs to be at peace among itself, with one another. And that's really hard because, again, you go back to this idea that that I'm a sinner and I'm selfish and I struggle with me wanting to be the most important person in the whole world. But so do you. And I'm supposed to be at peace with you. And some of you I can do because I like you and we have the same hobbies and we get along pretty well and we think the same way. But Paul then goes on and continues on in this passage. He says, be at peace among yourself. And we urge you, brothers, you people, Not leaders. He's transitioning here. Brothers. The church. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Admonish, encourage, help. Those are terms we associate with the pastor role, isn't it? But he's saying brothers. He's talking to you guys. He's not neglecting the role of the pastor. Right? There's plenty of other Paul calls pastors and elders to do a lot of things. And these things are them. But here he's also saying, look, you, the church, you're responsible for one another. You're responsible to invest in each other's lives. You're responsible to call into account those people. But we struggle with that, don't we? I mean, how easy is it to be angry with the idols around us? Those who are idle, they don't do anything. They're loafers. They're almost like leeches to the church. I'll confess something to you because I know some of you are in the same boat. I have walked out of this church and other churches I have served angry because people sit in the pews and do nothing. And I've repented of that. God has shown me. It's not me. I can sit here and say, do this. And if God isn't going to stir that in you, you're just going to do it out of guilt. And I don't want you doing it if you're just doing it out of guilt. But instead of being mad, he tells us to admonish them. To admonish isn't a bad thing. Sometimes we have this extra weight to that word. But admonishes, I see something wrong and I want to show you goodness and draw you to that. It's this idea like, I'm pleading with you. Please, please, stop being idle. Stop doing nothing. Please experience the goodness of what it means to be serving God with your whole life. Please experience the joy of joining with the body of Christ. Admonish isn't, that's wrong. Stop doing that. It's, I love you and I want what's best for you. And you're sitting there saying, I'm good. Or maybe you find yourself frustrated with the faint-hearted. You know, these people who have gifts and talents, but they think they're inadequate. They struggle to believe that God could actually use them for His kingdom and glory. Paul tells us to encourage them. Encourage the faint-hearted. Praise them where praise is due. If you see them do something that's awesome, let them know that. But then let them know that God can use that. Encourage them to use the gifts that God has given them to expand the kingdom. Or maybe maybe you have disdain for the weak. You know, those, those people who, who fail with their struggle time and time again, I had this great example. I used to work at this camp up in New Hampshire. And the first week of camp was kind of orientation and, and, and all this stuff and getting camp ready for the campers and the guests to come. And at the end of that week, we would have a big bonfire and people would share what God was doing in their life throughout the year. And some of those people were like me. We, we've worked multiple summers there. And every year there was this group of people who would share the same struggle Every year, I'm struggling with this. Next year, I'm struggling with this. That was the same thing as last year. Next year, I'm struggling with that. This is three years now. 
Just get tough. Stop. Don't want to do it anymore? Don't do it. And I'd walk away shaking my head and just disgust of them like, man, why can't they just stop? But what Paul says here is he says, instead of shaking your head saying, get tough, help them. Help them. And the word help here is, is, is actually translated as support, hold up. They're starting to tip. Brace them. Help them. How are you helping those who are weak in the church? How are you strengthening them? How are you coming along the side, those who are weak in the faith, so that they would grow enough to overcome those sins that they're constantly struggling with? Paul says to them, be patient with them all. Because some of you do really well with those who are weak. You have that compassion. I lack that sometimes. Or maybe you do weak with those who are kind of the loafers. But he says, be patient with them all. Be patient, a quality that God has shown to you. Act in peace because we serve the God of peace. Show them love because our God is the God of love. But to do this, I have to see myself in the right eyes. I have to know I'm not the most important person. There are other people that God has placed here with me. What am I doing to help them? It's hard. I grew up outside New York City. Patience is not a virtue trained into our kids there. Everything was supposed to happen days ago. When I read through this, this is one of my hardest parts. I'm like, I, can, I can help the person who's idle in their faith. I can, but man, I don't have patience for them because I want them to be fixed now. It gets better. He goes on. Verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And we know that as Christians, we're not supposed to retaliate out of sin. I mean, the famous verse, turn, turn the other cheek. Right? We get that. But Paul is saying here, talking to the church, he is saying, when... When someone does evil, don't retaliate, but don't just swallow your pride. Don't just take it on the chin, but actually do good to that person. Man, that is hard, isn't it? And he's saying to one another, when he says one another, he's talking to the church, he's saying, when you do something bad to them, you do something good to them. But then Paul gets crazy here. He says, and do that same thing to everyone. Now, everyone has just gone outside the doors of this building. I mean, it's easy for me to do good to my family when they do something wrong, because they're my family. And it's, it's easier for me to do good to someone here when they do wrong to me, because, well, you're a Christian. And you're part of my family. But when someone's not a Christian and does wrong to me, I want to let them have it. And what Paul is saying is, look, as a church, I want you to do good to those who do evil, not just here, not just where it's easy. Because people do that who aren't believers. I want you to do it to the people who aren't in this church. People who don't know me as Lord and Savior. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice Always. I can look at some of your faces right now and I know that this is not sitting in your heart. 
Rejoice always because a life of rejoicing is the will of God for you. Christian, what are you rejoicing in? Are you rejoicing? You have so much to praise God for. Pray without ceasing because a life of prayer is the will of God for you. Now, pray without ceasing doesn't mean drop everything and just sit and pray. Maybe there are times you need to put aside what you're doing and take a break. You know, before you punch the computer screen because it's not working, put aside that and pray. Okay? But it's not that. He's saying with pray without ceasing means live a life. Right? Live a life where everything is carried out in the spirit of prayer. Christians. I don't have time to spend a, a, lot, of, a lot of time on this, but I'm overwhelmed that I serve a God who actually listens to me. And you, you can read, you can read one of one of my favorite stories, you know, the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and and they're doing all this crazy stuff to try to get their God to listen to them. And they're dancing, they're cutting, they're chanting, they're you know, they, it's crazy. What's Elijah do? He just says, "Dear Lord," and God listens. We have a God that listens. Why don't we talk to him more? Give thanks in all circumstances because a life of gratitude is the will of God for you. God is constantly working in your life. You should be thankful for that. I mean, even in the worst situations, you have Christ. And that should fill you with praise and gratitude. As we grow as a people who are, are, are just in this state of constant prayer, our eyes are open to the blessing of the Lord. And when we see that, you will be filled with praise. And you will be filled with gratitude. Prayer kind of wipes the dirt off your glasses. My daughter wears glasses and there are times I'm talking to her and I'm like, can you even see me? But think about like if you're driving in the car and we, we did this trip last summer and, and we went around the country and we did like 5,000 miles, no exaggeration, with five kids in a car. And as we were leaving, she didn't know where her glasses were. And my wife was like, don't worry about it. I'm like, she's not going to see anything. We tore up her room and finally found her glasses. And that's kind of what prayer is like. I don't see anything because I'm only looking here. Prayer causes me to look to God. It wipes the garbage off of my glasses. Wow, that's beautiful. Wow, he did something. Verse 18. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. When Paul uses the present tense imperative here, do not, he's not saying that the church in Thessalonica is actually quenching the spirit. When he says do not, he's saying this is a continual, habitual habit that you need to have. Be active in not quenching. Make sure it never happens. And then we could spend a while, we could preach a whole sermon here on what prophecy is and how it happens and what it looks like. And I don't have time for that, so I apologize. But there is this great thing that they invented a bunch of years ago called the internet. And you can go on it and you can go to our church website and Pastor Steve has some great sermons on 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where he talks about prophecy, the role in the church, what it is. And if you want to talk about it, I'll be hanging out in the hallway. We can talk about it later. You can come over to my house for lunch. Leah, we have cereal, right? Okay, so cereal, you know, come on over. Um, 
But I want to point out what he's saying here. Don't quench the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, one of its jobs is to reveal the truth of God to us. And not just to reveal the truth. Another job that the Spirit has is to convict us when we are stepping outside of the truth. So if I am quenching it, if I am stopping it, if I'm suppressing it, what I'm actually doing is suffocating the very thing that leads me to God. So he says to test things. Test everything. Hold to what is good. Test it. And when it's good, if it's right, hold it close. Know it. Because you'll be able to actually recognize the counterfeit. I don't know if you know this, but the Secret Service has another job that most people don't know about. Besides protecting the president and the VP and other important people who come into the country, one of the major jobs the Secret Service has is to find out counterfeiters. Those people who make false checks or false money. And one of the things they do is they don't look at all the counterfeit things. They sit and study the genuine deal. They hold it. They smell it. They touch it. They look at it under light. They know, like, they know it so well that as soon as they pick up the piece of paper, they said, oh, this doesn't feel like a dollar. If you know the truth and you hold it so dear... You won't be led astray. As soon as they smell it, doesn't smell like real money. Doesn't look like real money. Oop, there's a smudge. This number doesn't match up with the place that it supposedly was printed at. It's it's crazy. And maybe you don't know that with money, but you guys probably have something in your life that's so automatic that you know when it's not right. If you don't know what the truth is, if you're not testing to find out what's real, you're just going to flop around with every new fad that comes your way. Paul, he, he ends this section of the precepts with this, this verse which is basically kind of summing up all of it. Abstain. Flee from. Don't go by it. Put it off. Abstain from every form of evil. Every form of evil. Not just the big things, but every form. The little things. Because you see, as the body of Christ, we're supposed to be a sweet-smelling fragrance. A holy priesthood. Maybe you've experienced this. You ever cook a really good meal and then something happens in your house that has like a bad smell? Like maybe you have a little baby. Okay. Doesn't it wreck the rest of the good smell as soon as baby's diaper whiffs towards you in the kitchen? I mean, it's a baby. It's not a lot in there. Every hint of evil, put it away. Be a sweet-smelling fragrance. Our head of this church, not just this church, this building, the church is God, is Christ. He is righteous. And so we as a body should be righteous and holy. The church is to be a holy community. We're to be mirroring the image of God. That is what Paul is calling. This looks like actions and specific details, but if you put all these details together, you look like Christ. The church is supposed to be a place where help is received. The timid are encouraged. The weak are strengthened. And those who have been led astray are walked back to the truth. And all this is done in an environment of peace and unity and love because brothers and sisters are seeking to build up other brothers and sisters. 
But we can read this passage, these first few verses here, and we can walk away discouraged. Because when we look at our church, we ask ourselves, are we this church? Yes. And no. Or we could walk away discouraged because, man, Kurt, you're driving home the point when he says, brothers, you mean me. And I am not this. And I've tried to be. And I've fallen flat on my face. I can't do it. But this is the best part. This is why I love this passage. I've come to love this. It changes. So Paul is moving from precepts. Do this. Look like this. Act like this. And there's this change in verse 23. Because you're exactly right. You can't be that. You can't do that by yourself. Verse 23, Paul transitions. Whoops, it's falling off my ear. Paul transitions from instructing us in precepts to petitioning. So the last focus of the day is the petition. Not the second focus, sorry, is petition. Verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he's moved from instructing us on how the body of Christ is to interact with each other to actually petitioning the God who is capable of making those people holy. God calls his people to be sanctified and he provides the grace for it to actually happen. This is why I'm a Christian, to be honest. I don't know of another religion where it says, God knows you're incapable, so He is going to do it. I mean, I've studied about other religions, I've traveled around the world, and I've heard about them, and most of them are... You do this, this, and this, and then you obtain that. If you are a Christian, you have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you and working in you. Because apart from this work of the Spirit in your life, you you can't. You can't be sanctified. That is, you can't be set aside holy before God. You need the Spirit working in you. If God's not working in you, your actions are are just a quickly fading game of charades. You pretend like you're resting in the sovereignty of God. God, God, it's all under control until somebody does something to you that you weren't expecting. And then the cracks in the mask show and the real self comes through And your new goal isn't praising and resting in God. Your new goal is making sure everybody knows what that person did to you and why they're wrong. Or maybe your rejoicing and your praise and your thanks fades because the church messed with your sacred cow. You guys know what a sacred cow is? Since nobody said no, I'm going to keep going. Why does it fade? Why? Because, well, you see, people celebrated your gifts and your abilities to do that in this thing. Whether that be a ministry or a program or whatever it is. And as soon as the church maybe took that program away or changed that ministry, and now you don't have a place to be. Because your hope and your happiness was in the fact that you were the one in charge. Or that you were good enough to do this. And they took that away. So instead of finding your joy in the risen Savior, you're crushed because they took your stuff away. Paul petitions the only person who can actually change us. And not just change us, but transform us completely. That's what he's saying here. 
we can get into another thing about, well, are there three parts of a person or are there two parts? Is it just body and spirit and sometimes soul is thrown in there? It's not important. What is important here is he's saying every bit of you. I don't want to just change a part of you. I want to change you. Soul, spirit, body, completely new. I'm changing you completely. When Christ returns on that awesome day, our sanctification will be complete because of what He will do in His people. He will glorify you into the image of God. We need to come into step with Paul here. We need to petition and we need to plead with God. Change us. God, I need Your strength. I need Your power. I need You to strip sin away from me. Transform me. Make me a new creation. Oftentimes we call this surrendering to God as dying to self. Without daily death to ourselves, we continue to struggle. We struggle with the very things Paul just told us that we need to be as a church. We struggle with, I don't want to be under your authority because you're not giving me what I want. Those faint-hearted, those weak people, they just need a man up. No one helped me when I was in struggling, when I was in trouble. Now they want me to help them? Or that person who hurt me deserves to get everything that's coming their way. Or I have nothing to rejoice in because all that God dealt me was garbage. If only He would give me what I need, what I want. Or I already did my work for the church. Now what's the church going to do for me? If we don't petition God to sanctify our sinful, selfish nature, we just continue to be these little me-bombs, ticking away, waiting to explode. And that just breaks apart the bride. And the thing I love about this is we need to petition and pray for ourselves and our own sanctification. But if you actually look, who is Paul praying for here? He's praying for the Thessalonians. May the God of peace himself sanctify you. You see, as we grow as Christians and, and as we, 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 we become more like Christ, kind of echoing back to verse 17 about praying without ceasing, we find ourselves praying. And not just praying for me, God make me better, but God help those people. Help my wife, help my kids, help my friends, help this person. Lord, I can't change anybody. Do you know how frustrating that is as a pastor who is constantly trying to put to death his own sin? I want to make you a Christian. Oh wait, God, you're right. I can't do that. I need you to do it. I need to be in a spot where I'm praying without ceasing. It puts me in a place where I kind of step into these streams of God's grace and love and it flows out and I stop thinking about myself and I'm actually praying for you. That God would work in you. And that my desires would be that they would be saved, that you would be sanctified, that I would rejoice when God does awesome things in you. How often have you prayed for somebody else in this church? On your own. Not at the evening of prayer. Not a Wednesday night. Not when, you know, Bill was up here praying or whatever. Like, how often do you pray for the sanctification of the people sitting next to you? And this passage doesn't just end with him praying for sanctification and petitioning God. Because we can petition people. People don't use the, do it as much maybe on email. Maybe now they use Facebook or whatever. But I remember getting these emails all the time like, you know, Senator so-and-so wants to do this. Sign this and forward it to all your friends. Does Senator so-and-so ever get that? I don't know. But like, petition. And then maybe, maybe he will listen to you us. 
But again, going back to a God who actually hears our prayers, he doesn't just hear them. He's going to do something. We're not petitioning for something new. God has not promised to give me a motorcycle. I can't just petition God and he will give me a motorcycle. God has promised that he will sanctify me. So when I petition him, he will give that to me. Last focus, the promise. I want to start in verse 23, which we've already read, but, but, but there's something really cool that I love here. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Who's going to do it? Who's faithful? He, God, is faithful. He will surely do it. Yes, God has called you to be holy, but He is faithful. I can't drive this point home enough. He's not tricking you. He's not saying, I want you to do all these things, and when you fall flat on your face, ha 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 ha. Gotcha. He's not setting you up for failure. The whole reason God has called a people to Himself is so that they would be holy. Be holy. Be holy. I'm driving home be for a reason. God would be unfaithful to His own purpose if He didn't sanctify you. God knows that you can't sanctify yourself. He knows it better than anyone. And those of you who maybe think, well, I can if I just worked harder and if I just tried, I, I just want to throw this out. Let's be honest with yourself. How well are you at identifying the own issues that you have in your life? I mean, how well do you see your own sin? Praise God for spouses. Or kids. Because how many times do you do something to your kid and your kid goes back and says, well, you did that to me the other day. Okay. I guess I'll show grace. Right? Like, we don't do that. Our friends, I mean, praise God for friends who say, you know what, I, I've been seeing something going on here and I have a question about that. We can't even see ourselves. If you can't see your own problem, how are you going to fix it? You can't fix it. You can't do it. You can't even see the issue. You cannot sanctify yourself, but yet you were called to be sanctified. It's for that very reason that Jesus came to this earth. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. It tells us that, that Christ gave himself up to death. Why? Why did he do that? So that he could sanctify her. You. And you. And you. And you. And you. Sanctify her. The church. Why did he give himself up to death? So that he could sanctify the church. God has promised to do it. The good news is that you will be sanctified because of Christ's work. Not your work. You can't do it. This is why I love Christ. This is why I'm a Christian. My friends who make fun of me or have mocked me for being a Christian, I can sit down with them. Even they know that they can't be perfect. Even they know that if they tried hard enough, it still won't be enough. Forgiveness doesn't just make holiness an option. It actually makes it possible. You can be Holy, because God is going to change you. He has promised to do it. Sanctification is often slow at times. Sometimes it occurs in awkward ways. There have been some really weird things that God has used to sanctify me. 
It happens at odd intervals. As a pastor, I see this. I see kids like, man, like they grow like crazy and then they hit this wall and you're like, what happened? Why did you stop? And then a year later, something clicks that God does in them and they continue. God has promised to do it. God is faithful. He will surely do it. That is a promise. It's not an option. It is a promise. God's sanctification is meant to be lived out amongst this church. Pray that God would sanctify you. Pray that God would sanctify the person next to you. Pray that God would sanctify the person three rows back. Pray that God would sanctify me. It's meant to be lived out in the church. And even the way that God does it. As God is making you holy, He is using you in the sanctification of somebody else. You rub up against each other. And as He is using others and growing them in their sanctification, He uses them to help you become holy. That's how the church, a group of selfish, sinful enemies, actually grows into one body that lives together in a manner that is worthy of their God. You want to kill your sinful, selfish nature? You want to destroy the thing that brings division within this church? Allow God to transform you. Die to self. Paul understands that. He, he understands. I mean, that's what he's been talking about. And as you go through this, this, this passage, and, and right before the section we got to, he says, he's talking about the return of God. I don't know how much time we have left. So you better start looking like Christ. And here's how he looks. Dot, da, dot, da, dot, da, dot, dot. But you can't do it by yourself. So I'm going to petition the God who has promised to do it. And He is faithful to do it. So I pray for us. May the God of peace Himself sanctify us completely. May your whole spirit, your whole soul, and your whole body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because He... God, the only one who can do it, the only one who has called you, He is faithful and He will surely do it. So rejoice, church. Be grateful because God is faithful and He will surely make a holy people for Himself. Let's pray. God, we come to You as a holy, righteous God. Not a God who has His hands tied, but a God who is capable of doing anything He desires to do. And You have said that You would set aside a people, a holy, righteous people for Yourself. And so You will make that happen. But help us to be willing to be changed by You. And as we grow in sanctification, Lord, as we grow in the image of You, we would be a church that doesn't just honor and esteem the leaders, but we esteem others above ourselves, Because we know that they, like us, are part of Your beautiful body, Your beloved bride. Lord, if we are trying to chug along and work through this, that Your Spirit would convict us that we are outside of Your truth and would show us the truth that You are God. I pray these things in Your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.